Hey guys, it's Dawn and I wanted to let you know about a new space I'm creating called What's the Truth Community. If you experience trauma in childhood, the truth can be really elusive. In toxic families, the truth of what goes on behind closed doors is hidden. And I speak to people every day who are only just now beginning to discover the truth of who they really are years later because we were given so many false beliefs about ourselves. Nobody loves you. You should be ashamed. You'll never amount to anything. All the lies are manipulation within toxic family homes. But each belief that gets filed away in your subconscious mind is so powerful. Each belief changes every choice you make and that can change the entire direction of your life. If you are ready to create a beautiful life for yourself, come and join me in the What's the Truth community. By sharing truth, we are learning to step out of the fog and see what is the truth of your life so far. Because once you can see it, you can fix it. We are going to be talking about truth so that you can finally live in peace, freedom and authenticity. In the What's the Truth membership, you will have access to subscriber-only episodes, all ad-free and all for the cost of a cup of coffee a month. This is the most important community you will become a part of this year. If you listen via the Apple Podcasts app, you can sign up right there in the app. And if you listen on any other platform, you can sign up via Supercast. It's super easy and the links are in the show notes. This is your safe space. I'm so excited for you to join me. My lucky star was that I remembered the feeling of them loving me so much, caring for me so tenderly. I don't have that from my mother. I don't remember her at all. But my sisters must have taken over. And it, it just tells me the importance of bonding and attachment. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls. And the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives. And that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you? What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are? Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. What happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hey my beautiful friends, welcome back. Do you feel guilty for taking a mental health day? We live in a world where productivity is so highly valued and doing and being productive is all that really matters. 
on the Heal blog this week, you can find eight crucial reasons you should take a mental health day. Go and check these out. The link is in the show notes. Barbara Lane believes that the largest factor to the continuation of child abuse is secrecy. We are taught to keep our secrets from a very young age. We are silenced and we are shamed. And it's generational. Speaking out will ruin the family or bring shame when by far the easiest thing to do is bury the past. Barbara's story is extraordinary. One of 11 sisters. Barbara's mum simply left one day and she never came back. Barbara was just three years old and she remembers the deep love and care that her sisters gave her in the orphanage. And she remembered it over all the years she lived in a foster home filled with abuse and despair. Please join me now for Barbara's story. Barbara Lane, welcome to the podcast. You have an incredible story to share and you've written a book called Broken Water that goes deeply into this story. I know you wrote the book because you believe the largest contributing factor to the continuation of child abuse is secrecy and I couldn't agree more. With Broken Water, you are seeking to shatter the secrecy around what happens to children. You were born into a family that ultimately consisted of 11 sisters. Can you share with us what happened when you were three years old? Absolutely. And thank you for that warm introduction. I appreciate it. I was three years old, the ninth of then 10 girls to be born in the Lane family. And our family fell apart. Evidently, my mother and father had problems and she kicked him out. We lived in the projects of St. Louis. We were poor. And she kicked him out of our apartment there. And the story goes, depending upon which sister you listen to, you know, memories can be very misleading. And so, you know, I've spent years trying to pull their memories together into something that makes some logical sense. So what I'm about to say is based upon that. According to their stories, my mother uh, made our father leave the apartment and she started dating. And then she started dating lots of men at the same time and started having them into the apartment around us children, you know, our little ones. And uh, eventually she decided to take off with one of them. She turned off the heat. This was December, a very particularly cold December in St. Louis. She turned the heat off sold all the furniture, took the baby, my little sister Pam, who was seven months old, with her and abandoned the rest of us in that apartment. Now, there were two older sisters that were already married out of the home, but back then, women didn't drive, didn't have cars, and, you know, they would call on occasion, but they really didn't know what was going on and had no idea we were left like that until three days that we were left in there, a neighbor realized something was wrong and called my eldest sister and said, you know, your your younger sisters are in there all alone, no food, no heat, and your mom's gone. So she called the parish priest where she lived and he called Catholic Charities and they came and took us from that home. And you would think that would have been like my biggest trauma, but I was so young, it wasn't. 
that did not traumatize me. It did my older sisters terribly. So we were placed in a Catholic orphanage. My trauma occurred when the sisters I loved, who nurtured me, babied me, washed my hair, read books to me, pampered me, left the orphanage to go into different foster care homes. And I was too young to know what that meant. I just knew they were gone. And eventually, my one sister, Kay, who's 18 months older than I, we ended up in foster care as well. And I could tell you a little story about what it's like to be dropped off in foster care, because I think the same thing occurs today. I remember the day, and I was maybe three and a half at that time, the holy nuns dropped us off into this strange home. And I knew intuitively inside me, this was not good. This was not good. So I climbed under the nun's skirt and sat down on her high top boot and held onto her leg. And I just kept saying, don't you leave me here. Don't you do it. But they did. They got me loose, left me there. And I remember the closing of that door. So these are memories I carry through my entire life. And I know children do that as well today, often over and over from, you know, foster home to foster home, separated from siblings, which they try not to do anymore, but they still do. So anyway, as the story goes, this is our story. So I know this part is is true. Screening back then was pretty poor. And in some ways, screening needs to be improved today as well and what foster parents are. Let me state that there are some incredible foster parents out there doing magnificent jobs and we just need more like them and we need a way to screen it so that we can make sure, you know, that the foster care they're giving is appropriate for the child and non-abusive. But we were placed in the home of a mafia grunt. So we grew up with, with all the things you could possibly think about, a little bit like the Godfather movie, in the way you're dressed up like, you know, this little princess and such, but then the abuse is going on behind closed doors. So that was very traumatic for my and my sister in so many ways because we experienced every kind of abuse there is. I mean, any abuse is emotional, but, you know, we experienced sexual abuse, physical abuse, and, you know, the emotional belittling and overpowering and all of that, all of it in that home until we grew up. So that is traumatic too, but I still had a larger trauma, Dawn. It was missing my sister's. I could not get over missing my sisters. You know, all the other stuff, yes, it took years of therapy, and that's another whole thing we can talk about, but I couldn't heal that, and I couldn't find them. You know, mm. back then, there wasn't an internet. You know, there there wasn't Ancestry.com. I tell people that I did write Oprah a letter because I used to have reunions on her show, but I never heard back from her, so she might not have ever seen the letter. But, you know, I tried every way I knew how with what was available, but I could not forget them. I could not let go of the way I had bonded and attached to them in such a beautiful way. I couldn't let go of that. And I felt the need and desire to thank them because I know what I got from that bonding and attachment saw me through. You know, it got me through. 
that's that core of knowing you were loved as an infant. It gave the resilience, I think, was so necessary to, in addition to all the therapy, you know, to, to getting through that kind of trauma as a child. Oh, absolutely. It's knowing that you were loved, even, I knew it even when you... Core. Yeah, even when you didn't have that for all those years, you had that right. memory that I am yes. loved and yes. and that's beautiful, isn't it? Yes. And the fact that you were so young and you still have very strong memories, you were only three when all of this began. Right. That's, that's incredible that you hold on to such well, clear I think, memories. I think a lot of children do. They may block them or maybe they have a sensory memory or an aroma, a smell, or a feel, but I think that they're very capable and the memories are in there somewhere, either stored as as an ache in their shoulder or a churning in the tummy, that memory's there. Uh, My lucky star was that I remembered the feeling of them loving me so much, caring for me so tenderly. I don't have that from my mother. I don't remember her at all. But my sisters must have taken over. You know, there were so many of us that they took care of the babies probably. And it it just tells me the importance of bonding and attachment. And that can happen at any stage in your life. It doesn't have to be as an infant. You know, so someone's gone through trauma and all of this. They can surround themselves, right? With, with people who are safe, I know it's the whole process to learn even what that is, but and people that you can bond and attach to and, and get that same feeling to help you heal your past. So it's a beautiful thing. I'm very much about bonding, bonding and attachment theory. Yes, absolutely. And so you're in this orphanage and over mm-hmm. a period of months, was it, that, that your right. sister disappeared? off to their own um, homes? We were only there about nine months. Mm -hmm. Uh, My older sisters, as I watched them leave, many of them came back, you know, but we were already gone. Or, you know, you you have multiple placements generally in foster care. I think where we ended up was actually our second placement. The first one, if I remember correctly, my sister couldn't stop crying and they couldn't console her. She was longing for our other sisters as well. And so we went back to the orphanage probably after a day. She just couldn't. But then the second one, we stayed, you know, they just... We were there, but my sisters, I would learn this years later, years later, when we were reunited, I was to learn how many foster homes they were in and each sister in foster care or adoption was sexually abused. There wasn't one of us that was missed, not one. And now look at the 11 sisters, even the ones that were grown in out of the home also experienced sexual abuse in their childhood either by a neighbor or by a family member, none of us missed it, not one. What's the chances? Unfortunately, the chances are very high. Mm. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's, Mm -hmm. that's so, oh, that's so scary, isn't it? That's terrifying. And, and, and like you said, back then they probably weren't vetting people, but I mean, do you think it's much different now? In some cases, yes, and way too many cases, no. 
Mm. And, and I understand it because there's a lack of homes. Where do we put these children? And in some states here in our country, they're, they're putting them up in hotels because they have no place to put these children. You know, to me, a child in a hotel room, even with supervision, is going to be super vulnerable, super vulnerable. So there aren't enough loving homes for these children. So, you know, it's contemplations of should they go back to group homes or what we used to call orphanages, which they don't use that word anymore much in, in, in my world. But, you know, group homes, is that the better place to locate these children so that they're safe? It, it's an overburdened, understaffed system. So the foster care system struggles. I, I worked for many years as a child advocate and I would have to fight with these incredible social workers. I mean, they were incredible trying to do their best, but their docket was so full. They were putting these kids wherever, back to the abusive grandpa or back to this or back to that. And, you know, we kind of get into it. Like, you know, I'm not going to, you're not putting that kid back there over, you know, while I'm on this case, but they're, they're so limited with what they can do and where they can put the kids. And of course there's, the push to re reunify families, which part of me is all about, because I totally understand what it feels like to lose your family, you know, mm. but at the same sense, if the, if the proper oversights and resources aren't in there, same thing's going to happen as soon as the case is closed. So mm. it's a sad situation. It is. And I think for a child in that situation, you're mm -hmm completely powerless aren't you did you, you ever are. try and did you ever try and speak up were there opportunities for you to tell anybody about what was going on not really in in our case our foster father remember he was the mafia <laughs> you know mm. he did who knows all the things he did as a grunt as a soldier for the boss in St. Louis and it wasn't until I was much older that I kind of caught on, like, why are we going here with that package every Saturday morning? And, you know, why do we all of a sudden have money for this? And then we don't. I mean, I had to be older before I could piece all of that together. But he had a gun constantly, which he threatened us with. And this happens to so many children, the threats. If you tell, I will shoot you. If you tell, I'll shoot us all. If you tell, I'll shoot your dog. You know, these kinds of threats to children are very successful in hushing them. You, you don't want to be responsible for the death of your sister or your dog or your bird or your bunny rabbit. You, mm. you know, so you, you, you quiet yourself. Also, one of the things that abusive uh, parents do, not just foster parents, caretakers, parents, is isolate the child. You know, they will isolate them. I wasn't allowed to talk about my sisters. I only had one visit with them that I truly remember when I was really young, probably because a social worker insisted. And so who, who are you going to tell? There's no one to tell. You're absolutely powerless in in that environment and it becomes kind of a this is just how life is right mm. you just get through each day as best you can but i believe all the skills a child in, ingeniously uses to survive an environment like that can be the beginning of skills to bring forward in adulthood and just kind of alter them somewhat like you know you might learn 
extreme skills, like how to be super quiet and never talk. That doesn't work. Or how to be so angry that, you know, you're talking all the time. That doesn't work. And and, and kind of say, but what a skill that was that kept me safe. I'm so honoring of my child within that I developed that skill. And now I, as an adult, I could say, okay, I can take care of me. I don't have to be quiet all the time, or I don't have to holler all the time. There's a middle ground that's the adult, right? That I can develop and use that. And so I always honor abused kids for even some of the most outrageous behaviors, because guess what? They're they're finding a behavior that takes the best care of them, that they know how in their given situation. And then we can work with that. Well, does it take care of you in school? Well, no. Okay, fine. What could we do? And with adults, as they grow up and, and they, you know, have all these erratic behaviors, I'm not going to beat them up. I'm going to praise them and say, good for you. Now let's look at it and, and honor the kids you were. You did this and you survived. But now, you are an adult. Let's, you know, you raise that adult up and that individual. What what can we do instead? What take what would you enjoy? Reparent that kid. It's so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So that's how I see it. And and that's kind of the process I went through with my healing is learning, you know, to accept the truth of my childhood. Number one, the hardest thing in the world to do, but accept that you also did everything you knew how. And so you embrace that inner kid rather than, you know, I think the norm, I don't know if the norm, but often, often, often we reject that child we once were, the shame, the guilt and all of that we just carry with us. So it's, it's, it's hard. Yes. And we do hold that shame and yet it isn't Mm -hmm. our shame, is it? It's the shame of the people who were supposedly meant to care for us and So that abusive home, were you there for your entire childhood? I was there till I married my husband. I was 19. And and a peculiar thing occurred. My sister, who was 18 months older than me, they decided to adopt us before she turned 18. What that did was close our records. So we had been so silenced through all our life. We didn't say a word. We just, you know, we had no power. Mm. We just went through it. We were adopted, but we could not access our records, which I would have been able to find my sisters, right? So we were adopted. Then they, after that was done, they kicked her out on her own at 17. She just was out in the world trying to survive. Wouldn't allow me to see her, talk to her. I didn't know where she was, so I lost another sister for for quite a while. And then, I don't know how to explain it, Dawn. When, When when you grow up like that, you live, at least I did, and I think many do, almost in like a hypnotic state. You pretend that your life is normal. You pretend that everything's okay. You pretend that, you know, you're going to live this wonderful life, and, and it allows you, it's a gift if you can do that, actually, it allows you to survive through that by, you know, dissociating from it. But then after I married, and I, God, love, I have this, how I found my soulmate at that age, I was just blessed. God's been watching over me through this whole thing, who just helped me work through this on my own, knew my whole story, 
supported every step of the way what I needed to do, which sometimes I didn't even know. And that was a big part of my healing as well as having a partner who wasn't telling me what to do because I had to come to terms with this kind of evil in my own way and overcome and be able to walk away from it on my own. So he allowed that, which had to be very hard for him. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. And to find that one person because have that understanding. It's it's incredible that you found that person. Mm -hmm. What was the state of your mental health, do you think, around that time of your life when you came out of that abusive home? It was still in a very fairyland kind of state. Again, I think the hardest thing, the first step in healing anything is accepting the truth the reality of what occurred. And I was as far away from that as the North Pole is for me right now. <laughs> but I was allowed that space. I was allowed the safety of that space. You can transform this, this what might be viewed as a negative symptom or a behavior that you're broken and you'll never be well and you'll never be normal into something that provides the space, the steps, and the exact right thing you need to heal, no matter how long that might take for your own unique path. So I stayed in that fantasy land for a little while. I enjoyed my husband. We were having fun. I had children. And then I started having almost like obsessive compulsive behaviors, cleaning the house and things that, you know, I wish my husband, my husband probably thinks I wish it would bother you today that this is this way, but no, it doesn't bother me anymore at all. <laughs> you know, If it's a mess, that's okay. We'll get to it. Don't worry about it. But back then, I think that my abuse and the control over it, I was starting to wake up. I was mm -hmm. starting to realize what had really occurred and it was terrifying. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. So I knew I was having these compulsive behaviors, so I went to a psychiatrist. And I remember sitting in that, it was a leather chair, and he was sitting in the desk, he had his glasses down on his nose, looking over at me kind of down and I wanted that chair to just swallow me whole and just hide me but he asked me tell me about your childhood which I'm sure he asked everyone that came in tell me about your childhood and in a brief second the distance between the fantasy life I was living and the reality of my life it just came together and I told him the truth 
in one short sentence. And he just looked down over those glasses again and he said, here's what you have to do. You have to go tell him you don't want him in your life anymore. I was no more capable of addressing those years of evil and doing that with a snap of the finger. Then, so I never went back to him. So in my opinion, he broke a big rule with, with therapy is you don't tell the individual what to do to heal. You follow them, you know? So it was, it was oh, well into my 30s when I ended up back in therapy. I had a migraine and I went to my family doctor and he was writing out a prescription, which happened to be the name of the therapist. <laughs> so I, I went to this incredible therapist and spent probably five years with her. And she knew how to follow my journey rather than dictate it. And I can't express how important that is in the healing process. She didn't let me get by with anything, don't get me wrong, but she followed my path. And uh, I did so much healing with her. And, and I learned to love her in, in the transference of attachment and bonding, you know, which you may hear all kinds of contradictory theories on that. But I do believe there is a lot of positive healing that can occur when you take transferences for your longing for a mother or a sister or whatever, and you place it on a healthy therapist that knows what to do with that. I healed, you know, that healed that. So I was very lucky. I had her and I had another mentor that I followed for 25 years from New Zealand. And he taught metaphor therapy and, and, and it was so healing for me because it's, you know, the concept, you know, the book, your body remembers, you know, that his theory was concisely, if you were injured as a child, you have to be healed as a child. So as a child, if, if, if you're getting beaten, you might remember that hit in the head, like it felt like something childlike, it felt like that toy over in the corner that you know that top that he picked up and threw at your head or something. so you remember things metaphorically in your childhood and and you carry those your whole life but you don't recognize them right you don't know why you have this headache all the time that's that memory so he had a way of externalizing these metaphors through drawing and what have you again a following of the client rather than a leading very transformative very healing of post-traumatic stress and all of that. So I trained with him and, and his training insisted that you go through the process yourself, right? Over and over so that you got, you know, you, you healed more and more and more. So again, I've been blessed beyond words to have the right people in my life at the right time. And, you know, it's work, but it's also so gratifying when you see yourself moving forward, you know, rather than looking at the steps you haven't taken yet. I'm very much progressive. Like, let's just keep looking at where where are you going rather than, you know, where you've been. You can look at where you've been if it's positive. Like, look, you know, I was back there, but now look where I'm at. This is all wonderful. Because I do think we all carry in us, and I know I did, the societal expectation that you're you're ruined, you're broken, you will never be successful, You you know, and we carry that in us educationally, socially, we we form our opinion of ourselves based upon 
the things we're told about ourselves. And mm. I like to shatter that, just shatter it. <laughs> mm, I love that. And that's so true, isn't it? It is about shattering that. I mean, that's we're all just so consumed with what the world believes about us. And we know what the truth is, you know, you, you have nothing to feel shame for. None of us do. It's, it's what happened to us. Maybe that person has the shame, you know, maybe they were passed the shame down to them. I mean, it's, it's Mm -hmm. just cycles, isn't it? And it is a cycle. Yeah, It, it, It can be a cycle and it can be, it can happen in many ways. I think when, when I was maybe about 14, I was so depressed and so unhappy with with everything that was happening my inability wouldn't let you leave the house all of this I told him to get that darn gun that he threatened us with all the time and just go ahead and shoot me mm-hmm. just shoot me I don't want to live anymore and I thought he might but I really didn't care at that point but instead what he did and this is true of bullies right he threw his hands up in the air He looked down at the floor, he walked out of the room, and he never bothered me again. Imagine that. Imagine that. So, you know, I thought to myself, if I knew that would have happened, I'd have told him to shoot me like when I was six or five, just, you know, but who knows? And where I got the strength to do that, I don't know, or if it was a weakness because I was just done, you know, Mm -hmm. but after that, I was able to leave the house, you know, I was able to go to birthday parties. I got into sports. I sang in the choir at school. I became a pretty typical normal teenager of the 60s or so it appeared. And I just took everything that happened to me. I locked it up in my brain. I call it a dungeon with really strong bars. I just didn't let it out. So, And that's a gift too, because if it had come out at that point in time, at that maturity level, I don't know if I'd have made it. So having the ability to put that away for a while until I was much older, much more mature and much more understanding that I could just deal with the amount of trauma that we experienced. I mean, this isn't, you know, trauma's trauma. I'm not trying to say some is worse than the other, but the consistency of it, I think, can make a huge difference in the difficulty of healing it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that's that's incredible because... When you get to that rock bottom and you're just like, I really couldn't care less if I live or die. Like that's, that's real. I actually didn't want to live. I did not. There was not, you know, I was done. (laughs) Yeah. And, and you, you said to him, I don't care. And then, and then he leaves you alone. It's just. It scared him, I guess. Yeah. It just scared him because he was a bully. I don't know if he would have ever shot us, but he could use that to bully us. You know, and he was very physical. He would, he was a beater. He would beat you. So you know, bully, bully. So mm. call a shot, literally. <laughs> and he, you know, that was it. Yeah, incredible. And mm-hmm. so, tell us about the the process of. I mean, you obviously you you've never stopped thinking about your sisters in all this time. No. Right. You get mm-hmm. married, you have children. When you're when you're getting married and having children, are you in contact with one sister? Just my sister I grew up with. Yeah. Mm. We reconnected. Once I was out of the home, I found her. And we reconnected and we stayed close. The other sisters I, ne- I still never forgot. And and my kids would say, 
we'd be at a grocery store and they'd see me looking at a, a woman and they'd go, I know what you're thinking. She looks a little like you and you're wondering if she's your sister. Wow. And I would go up and say, did you grow up around here? Or did, you know, try to find out. And years later, I did find out that one sister and I shopped at the same grocery store and never found each other. Imagine. Wow. And yeah. had the, had they moved very far, most of them? Most eventually scattered. We had some in Michigan, some stayed in Missouri. We had Kansas, Atlanta, Mississippi, and where else? Texas. So they were pretty scattered. Wow. And so mm-hmm. how did you start that process? Well, when I started coming to terms with what occurred and it, it became somewhat an empowered woman, little by little, I just found every avenue I could to find. I hired a detective. I went on all the lost family registries you could think of. I went to libraries and looked through. Back then it was microfish, you know, that you had to spin through. To yeah. I thought, well, if our mother abandoned us, maybe it made the paper. Maybe that would be a clue. And I didn't find anything about that, but I did find a picture of my family and it it just knocked me off my feet. I'm spinning this on the screen. And all of a sudden, here's a picture of the Lane family. I'm holding my mother's hand. There's all of us lined up. They had won a contest <laughs> for having the most consecutive girl babies. So, but it was the first picture I had of them. Mm-hmm. So I took it home and I put it in a frame. I mean, I put it on, on the mantle. It was like, this is my family. So it made it real. Yeah, yeah, it must have been like it it actually is a thing, you know, like it, because you know, there's it's no not evidence. Just in my mind, it's not a fantasy. This memory is real. Yeah. Yeah. So that was cool. Yes. So then do you want to know how we all found each other? Yeah. I'd love, <laughs> okay. I'd love to know. So I'm I'm a ministerial counselor. I'm very spiritual. I think that as an abused child, most abused children are highly intuitive because they learn to read the signals, like the look on someone's face, the way they walk, the way they hold their body. So they know like get out of the way or go in your bedroom or be quiet or, you know, they know how to protect themselves through this intuitive nature that they develop out of necessity another thing that can turn out to be a gift right your intuitive mm-hmm. nature so we moved from the midwest to the east coast and one of the big perks we found was so enjoyable was being near the ocean because you know in the midwest we never really saw the ocean so every august when my kids were off school we would rent a little flat right on the boardwalk in delaware on the beach And we'd spend the month of August, which was just incredible. So I was getting ready to for that trip for that August. And this was in 97. And I was packing the rice cooker and what have you. And Don, it was like somebody just shook me. And I had a premonition. And it said, if you wanted to find your sisters, why didn't you just ask? And I went, oh. And I had further to that premonition and understanding that after all my searching and the dead ends I found, my sisters were going to find me. And I knew they were going to find me in three days. So on the third day, we were at the beach. I got up in the morning, super early that morning, because I knew this is it. I just knew. I made breakfast and left it on the table. And I took a book and went out and sat on the beach. 
knowing any minute. Sure enough, my husband opens the door to the flat and he said, Barbara, come on in. And I knew. I ran in there. I looked him in the face and I said, they found me, didn't they? And he's crying. He said, how did you know? How did I know? I don't know. That little intuitive girl, when I was little, that developed that ability served me really well, right? So, and it was true. So they found me. And the other logical side of the story is my second eldest sister had tracked down a few of the sisters. If they worked hard enough, they could find some. And she was going to have a reunion with those she knew she could reach. And she started crying. And her son's best friend was there and said, why are you crying? She told him the story. And she pulls out this newspaper clipping that ironically, I remember when this was taken, myself and my sister Kay with our foster parents, they took a picture and put it in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch to hopefully encourage other parents to become wonderful foster parents like they pretended to be. So she saved that article and it happened to have the address of the foster home in it. Now, my sister through all the years contacted that home to find out how we were. They lied to them. They aren't here. We don't know where they went. They, they no longer are with us. So she believed that. And, and couldn't find us. But this young man went to the courts in Missouri, somehow with a name and an address, was able to find the adopted name and found my sister Kay's marriage license and her phone number. So he called her, she called me, and we all got together, well, eight of us got together the very next day. We all flew to St. Louis, those of us that could, to to be reunited and the tears were beyond words. Oh, <laughs> wow. That's so incredible, isn't it? That's just mm-hmm. incredible. What was the, what was that like to see your sisters? You know, I was three years old again, and mm. I flung myself literally like a three-year-old would into their arms as if, are they even going to be able to catch me? One, one of my sisters was really short and small. And they caught me and they hugged and they looked at our noses, at Kay's fingers, like, this is really you. This is really you after 43 years, you know, Mm. it was unbelievable. We laughed, we cried, we couldn't let go of each other. We wouldn't dare even, you know, like to go to the bathroom or standing outside the door. We couldn't be apart from each other for, for an instant. It just, it was like a a flock of birds, I guess you could say. Sometimes I say we just, we're just, we couldn't leave. We just couldn't leave each other. And then two weeks later, the rest who couldn't make it to St. Louis, we all met in Kansas. We were all together, all 11 of us, all alive, all well for the first time. And boy, have we made up for our childhood since then. Yes. Well, you said before that there's, so 11 sisters Mm-hmm. And how many children from the 11 34 sisters? between all of us. We have 34 children, children. and near 100 nieces and nephews. So what a family. What a family. Yeah. Yeah. And how far apart do you all live now? Well, we still kind of remain where we were. Mm-hmm. Um, we have five that are in heaven now. And that was a very difficult chapter of our life each time. But the rest 
pretty much where they were located. And we get together, we get together all the time. Till recently, where a couple of the older sisters are finding it difficult to travel. And mm-hmm. so it means it makes it harder for us all to be together at one time. The first eight years we were together, we played like little children and we didn't talk about our past. Mm-hmm. We just did not. We just played hand clapping. We jumped rope. I mean, we did silly, wonderful children's things. By the eighth year, my sisters started sharing with me their histories with the caveat, like, don't tell. See that secrecy thing? Don't tell the rest of the sisters. Basically, they thought the older sisters would feel guilty that they weren't able to help. So best not to say. But the the secrets were getting so heavy on me from each of the sisters. I kept encouraging them. This is our sisterhood. This is a safe place. We can sit down and share our stories. And none of them could. So they asked me to write them. So it took 15 years to gather all all their stories. Because as I say, I'm a follower. I will follow you on your path. And then you will come to resolve it. And if it takes 15 years, it takes 15 years. Having said that, all 11 of us came forward with our stories in due time. With the hope and the desire that they would help heal others and give them some encouragement, inspiration, and motivation that you are not what happened to you. Don't believe it. You are this divine soul that, you know, is capable of so much. So that's how that took form. And I thought initially it would just be a journal for each one to keep, but then they said, no, I think we can share these and and just tell you how long secrecy stays with an abused child. Several of my sisters that are still alive have never heard the other sisters' stories until I released this book on May 9th. They got a copy and sat down and read everyone's story the first time. I mean, right? And found it incredibly healing. And, you know, we're all like, oh, it just feels so much better and all of this. But that secrecy thing, the, the, is so hard to overcome. So first time they knew what happened to this sister and that sister. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Wow. That's, oh, it's hard to think about how deeply we hold it all inside, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I was going to suggest if, if our listeners, a lot of people say, what can you do to help with kids who are going through things like this? I was blessed once again with a mentor She didn't even know she was my mentor when I was a young girl. When I turned 14, I told you what occurred and I was allowed to leave the house. My best girlfriend moved down to the Ozarks by a beautiful place called the Black River. And I was allowed to go stay with her for weeks during the summer. And her mother loved me. Her mother role modeled for me what it what a real mother, what a, what a loving mother could be, what a loving home could be, you know, how you get through your struggles in your family and how you love each other in spite of these things. And I said to myself when I was 14, I want to be like her. Mm. So, you know, role modeling for our younger children, what it can be like laughter and joy and you know it doesn't have to be all this horrible stuff that you're going through i think is so incredibly important and valuable 
in the life of a child. So mentorship, advocacy, volunteering, just it could be one smile that could change the life of a child. I think it's so important. I get so excited about it. (laughs) Mm, It is so important. Um, I think before I was asking you if you knew what had happened to your mother. Each sister had a different story about what occurred. Each one's memory, one one believed our mother was there when the social workers came to take us. One said, no, she watched her drive away with her boyfriend. One said she was gone for a couple of days before. The stories were so different. It was really complicated to try to pull them together. It's incredible to give birth to 11 children and mm-hmm. and just abandon them, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. It's quite interesting. And, and she took with her your very youngest sister. Yes. Did that sister stay with her or did that sister end up? Well, eventually the sister was taken away as well mm. for neglect. But, you know, there, there, I think I understand why my mother had so many babies and why it was easy for her to abandon them. There is a, a syndrome in some women who have, and this, you know, concurs with your the cyclical cycle of abuse, you know, a longing or a hole or an emptiness in her that a baby could fill because Mm. a baby is totally dependent on a mother. But as soon as the baby gets to be two and wants to be independent and you get that no thing, that longing will be for another baby. And I often think, I don't remember my mother, but that that was probably why she had so many and why it was easy to leave them, but not the baby. Oh, wow. That makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you, you touched on this before, but I know you're passionate about it. How do you think we can help children who have experienced trauma? Well, if the child has experienced trauma, they need professional help, obviously, but they also need friendships outside of that clinical kind of 45 minute visit, mentorship, mentorship, you know, advocacy. And if you're a neighbor, I mean, open our eyes. If in my youth, for instance, neighbors could clearly see we weren't allowed to leave the house except to go to school and come back. How can, you know, kindergartners, first graders, second graders be kept in the home and and not allowed to go to a party or to a friend's or anywhere you know, observance and the strength to to speak out about this, you know, reporting suspicions. If you see a child, my sister Kay was always black and blue, glasses always broken, and the school did nothing. You know, mm. I know there's better re- mandatory reporting these days, but, to, you know, keep your eyes open, pay attention. And if you see something, don't be silent. Mm. Just break that silence, you know, that can happen. And again, if you see a child, you you know, you just feel there's something, a smile, like, oh, gee, you look great today, or I like your eyes, they're bright, can do so much for a child who's, who's experiencing or has experienced trauma, you know, no, no fast movements, no loud voices, all of that stuff around traumatized children, but there's just so much, just love. It's yeah. just expressing love. Love and connection in the end, isn't right. it? Yeah. And bonding, yes. Absolutely. Barbara, your book, Broken Water, tells this incredible story in detail. What do you want us to know about your book? I am so proud of my sisters and myself for breaking the silence 
that keeps the occurrence of child abuse happening. I'm so proud of us all for telling other women, speak up, tell your story, don't feel the shame. You are not what happened to you. You are not. It happened to you, but you are not of it. No matter if it's blood relic, you are not of it. You are outside of that. And your soul is indestructible. Don't ever forget that. Your soul cannot be harmed, in my opinion. When they say someone's of poor spirit or low spirit, to me, they've simply forgotten what they really are in that spiritual realm and that's indestructible and hang on to that and all this other stuff on this earth that happens to us you know you'll you'll understand it someday in your own way but hang on to that indestructible soul that's mm -hmm. what I would say Oh, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. And so true. I will put the link to the book in the show notes. Please go on and purchase a copy of, of Barbara's book because it is an incredible story. Barbara, thank you so much for sharing your truth, for standing up, for writing the book. It's so important that we have the people that speak out about these yeah. things and just Absolutely. all of these voices come together and we we start understanding the picture of of what is actually happening for so many kids out there because there are kids out there who are probably going through exactly what you went through and we're not doing enough to stop it so thank you for your voice and for being such a light well thank you for being our voice i appreciate it and the voice of all of those who find their way to your door and your beautiful podcast i really honor you and appreciate everything you're doing thank you so much don Thank you so much. Thank you for being on this journey of healing and community with me. If you listen on Apple, I would love it if you could take a moment to post a review for the podcast. It would mean a lot. Check the show notes for all links recommended in this episode. If you're on Instagram, follow me at my big love project and please share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it. Thank you for joining me. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thanks for joining me. I'll catch you next week.